From The Advocate magazine, in partnership with GLAAD, this is LGBTQ&A. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I'm here today with Scott Shigeyoka. Hi, Scott. Hey, so excited to be on this podcast with you. Hey, thanks for being here. So Scott is a storyteller and an entrepreneur, and perhaps most importantly, you are filling in as a guest host today. Uh, Tell the folks you're going to be interviewing. I'm going to be interviewing Ian Field-Stewart, who is an activist and an actress and works with an amazing organization called The Okra Project. I actually first discovered Ian and her work pretty recently when she spoke at the Brooklyn Liberation March this past June. That was that rally in March that drew over 15,000 people specifically to support Black trans lives, and it was one of the biggest of its kind ever. So the Oprah Project is pretty new for most people. Can you give us the quick synopsis of what they do? Yeah, absolutely. It's a really great organization that is working to deliver these luxury, free, delicious, nutritious meals to Black trans folks. And it's all prepared by Black trans chefs who get paid to do that. And I love in the interview that she talks about luxury and this idea of taking luxury and making it something that's accessible to the most marginalized people in the community. And I was really excited for us to do this interview with you and Ian because, you know, there's been so many there's been so many stories lately in the media about all of the trans women specifically dying, you know, during Pride Month and into July. And we can't only report on trans people in the media when they've died. We need to celebrate them when they're alive. And I think that Ian is doing such a cool thing. So I'm so excited to like play her story on this podcast. Should we get to the interview? Yes, I'm so excited for everyone to hear the conversation we had. Awesome, me too. So this is Scott and Ian Field-Stewart. Here it is. Ian, thank you so much for joining me, for taking the time. I'm just going to jump right in. I really wanted to sort of learn more about the work that you're doing at the Okra Project. Can you tell me a little bit about what it is and bring me back to where the idea started? How did you come up with the idea? I was sitting on a couch in December 2018 in my home having a meeting There was a masculine person who was part of the organizing meeting and they were talking over me a bit and I didn't really feel like I was being heard. So I put myself on mute and I turned to my friend Nyla and I said, hey, I have this idea. And I had been thinking for a couple of weeks that I wanted to do something to give back to the community because I knew that I was going to be going back to a home and a family that had raised me that I felt comfortable being my complete self with. And I knew that that was a privilege that I possessed. So I said to Nyla, you know, what if we were to raise money through your fund that you've created, which is the Black Trans Solidarity Fund, and it's a reparations group that is dedicated to shifting funds from the mainstream back into the hands of Black trans people. Nyla thought the idea was great. So we used those funds to pay a chef. We worked with Malik August of Zaddy's Kitchen. Uh, I had the idea on a Sunday. On Monday, uh, we had a meeting with Malik and Malik agreed. Our hope was to raise, you know, about like $500, work with a couple people. We released the project on a Wednesday and by Friday we had raised $6,000, all through individual donations. So um, we were totally blown away by that and made the commitment then and there that, you know, we'll, you know, run this thing till the wheels fall off. And the wheels have not fallen off yet. So here we are. I'm wondering, um, you know, why do you think there was such a resounding amount of support? What's your analysis on that? 
You know, it's interesting. I think that I constantly find myself um, shocked and puzzled um, by why and how people believe in the work that we do. It just seems so strange to be a part of something that people are actively saying, hey, we believe in it. Not only do we believe in it, but we want it to continue. I think that part of it is that, you know, um, it is the idea of taking luxury and making it something that's accessible to the most marginalized people. It's something that I personally am very committed to, to interrupting this idea that luxury should be exclusive and rather um, making luxury something that is available to all people um, and most importantly, to the most marginalized in our community. So for me, the idea of having you know a black trans chef come into your home and cook a healthy, home-cooked and culturally specific meal for you you know, for Black people in particular, the kitchen is such a place of familial lineage. It's a place of community. It's a place of love. It's it's just where so, so many things happen and so much of sort of daily life occurs in the kitchen. And so to have that kitchen be filled with someone who looks, loves, and lives like you is a luxury and a joy. And it builds community because you're not just having kind of this person who comes in and cooks for you and then leaves, but you're rather creating an experience of community where this person is someone who can become community, they can become chosen family, who knows what is possible when someone who looks, loves and lives like you chooses you and prioritizes you and says you are special and you are worthy of receiving this meal and you are worthy of sitting back and relaxing and have someone do for you. And I think that that for um, a community of people who for so long have had to make everything out of nothing. I think that's just such a gift and such a beautiful thing to have someone say, I will do for you because you're worth it. And I love what you're saying that everyone is worthy and deserving of having that luxury. And I think there's also something I'm hearing around helping people celebrate and reward the people who are often at the center of you know, moving our movements forward, moving our world forward, um, because trans and queer Black folk especially have been really involved in roles of leadership. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that, this idea of like, how do we truly honor and center on the people who have always been leading in these movements? What's your take on why we haven't been doing that? Why why are we as a, as a community and as a culture in this country not seeing the value that trans and queer Black folks are, are making in our, our progressive movements? Hmm. Well, in, in reaction to the first part of your question, I think that the thing that people can do is they can learn a new story. They can learn their history, learn what Stonewall actually was and who created it, and learn the many other names of Black trans women who have come before and Black people who have been the foundation of so much culture and divinity and greatness. Um, it's interesting, the second part of your question, it's something I'm asked a lot of kind of, you know, why do people ignore this history? Why do people erase Black trans people and trans people as a whole from dominant conversations about how we think about pride and culture and society? And I, my reaction is sort of always the same in that I, I just have to say that I am a Black, queer, non-binary, lesbian woman. I did not create transphobia, therefore I cannot be responsible for the undoing of it, nor can I be, nor can I really like explain why people move the way they move because I've only ever seen the divinity and the beauty and the greatness in Black trans people. 
And I am proud and honored and humbled to be a part of such a beautiful and wondrous community. And so why anyone would um, have beef, you know, with my people is, is truly baffling to me. It is that it is that confusion um, that fuels much of my rage because it is so unjustified, the hatred against us. I, I, I don't know why people don't want to know trans people and black trans people and know like the true history of things. I don't know. Maybe it's that it's more convenient. Maybe it's that people have been enjoying privilege for so long that they fear um, self-examination for fear that they will have to actually live in the real world. I, I don't know. Um, but I think that that question is absolutely something that more cis people should be answering for themselves. And I hope that more cis people will begin to question themselves and will publicly begin to provide answers. You know, why has transphobia been allowed to flourish for so long? And why have so many cis people um, been willing to allow our murders and our beatings and brutal brutalizing and the continued um, disenfranchisement of my people? Why have they allowed that to continue? I think it's a worthy question for cis people to um, consider and to answer and be held accountable to in earnest. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that I'm curious about is what can be collectively done to support trans or Black-led organizations? Is it about opening up our wallets? Is it about enlisting others? Is it about doing the education? How, how can we um, communicate this out in a way that, that leads to real change? Well, if you're open to it, I'd love to take this opportunity to, you know, provide a model for folks. And so I'm going to flip that question right back to you, you know, and ask you sort of what, what do you think can be done? I, I mean, at the Okra Project, we always accept donations and have been um, flourishing as a result of them. But as someone who has the privilege to sit um, at tables and banquet halls of privilege, and by which I mean just being able to be a cis person who exists in this world and can occupy that space, what do you feel? What do you feel can be done? I love that. I think for me, so one, I donated to the Ochre Project this week, and I want to continue to find other ways to support these kinds of organizations. And I think it's like, for me, just simple things like how do we gather as a community? It could be a small group of five of us. And, you know, can we read a book about Barbara Smith? Can we read or watch a film about Bayard Rustin? Can we learn about Marsha P. Johnson and the history of Pride and go deeper into STAR and go deeper into the organizations that they founded instead of ending at a surface level. And yeah, and I think you're, you're, what I'm hearing as well is this, how do we not tax people who are marginalized, who are um, having injustices and violence disproportionately put on them and actually start asking those questions ourselves and, and organizing ourselves. So that would be sort of my initial thoughts. Um, and when I hear what you when I hear what you're describing, my organizing brain jumps into then asking, so what's the next step after that, right? So once we've educated ourselves, because um, at the end of the day, all you really need to know is that people are dying. You know, absolutely know the history and know where where we all come from. But first, let's know that people are dying. And if you know, if you are to know that people are dying, right? And if you um, wish to be an advocate, an ally, or as I prefer, an accomplice, you know, what do you feel like you as a cis person would need? 
in order to create action, right? Um, what spaces are you occupying that you can have influence in? What access do you have, right? How far are you willing to go to ensure that we live? That for me, as I hear you talk about edu- the education piece, is perhaps the next question to start asking ourselves because people are dying. Again, throwing that back to you, what will it take for you as a cis person to, to take the lives and the lost lives of Black and Black and trans and Black and queer people seriously enough to provide specific and actions in earnest? And obviously, you know, I'm putting you on the spot and quite intentionally, but these are the kinds of things that I need more, I think more cis people need to be asking, especially when they ask trans people to show up and be in spaces where we are essentially asked questions like, oh, well, why should people care? Or why should we? Which not, which not what I'm saying that you are asking, to be clear. But, you know, that's, you know, as I've been doing, you know, press and things like that, a reoccurring question often is something that's as simple as, you know, hey, why should people care? And it is a very exhausting experience to have to explain to people over and over again why it is um, insulting, demeaning, and painful to have to beg for scraps that come from a meal that cis het, cis people have enjoyed for so long. Does that make sense? It 100% makes sense, yeah. And I think, you know, one of the the sort of ways that I'm thinking about moving through this space is um, when we talk about action, is when we think about something like defunding the police, for instance, mm. um, the, the impact of that that it has on mass incarceration, which is something my my dad was impacted by directly and our family was impacted by directly. You know, I think about you know what is a culture that small businesses on Main Street or collectively um, in America feel about the need for policing to protect their quote unquote possessions, right, or property, and how do we change those mindsets and actually help people understand that there's many alternatives. Um, that we can pull from other countries, other cultures, even within our own country that exists that don't rely on armed men um, or women or, or armed people who are militarized coming in and trying to resolve issues that they're not trained for. And isn't that interesting? In the span of just asking yourself two questions, you were able to move from a place of having, you know, a group of five people who are reading books together to um, going into communities and working with small businesses to understand their specific needs in an effort to abolish the police, right? What a transformative thing to happen in just two questions. And so I hope that many more cis people will use that that kind of model for themselves and say, okay, I know like, you know, what I can educate myself on, but what can I actually do? And you've already provided them with a literally an abolitionist politics. Yeah, I love that. I love creating this framework where we can understand it's not just about education, although important, it's about moving into action. And then what are the questions that we can ask ourselves so that we can play a role, a meaningful role in in actually creating that change and, and actually abolishing the systems that are literally killing or literally oppressing people that we should love, right? Because not only are, you know, Black trans and non-binary and queer folks in our own community, the LGBTQ community, 
And we should just be doing that in general, even if you're not a part of the LGBTQ community. Absolutely. I love this. This is amazing. This was like school for me. <laughs> Moving back to um, the Ochre Project, I was curious to learn a little bit more about if you could maybe bring in a moment where you've seen uh, the impact that the Ochre Project has been having and, and, and help paint a picture for, uh, to others on why they should support and why they should, you know, open up their wallets and, and give to these kinds of projects. There was a client that we had in Philadelphia, and this was when we were, obviously this was pre-COVID-19. They had reached out to us because they were experiencing um, issues as far as like receiving their SNAP benefits. They were going to be going about a week without any money to pay for food. And so what we did was we essentially had some had a chef come to their home every other day and cook like a large meal for them. And we paid our chef, of course, cooked enough for them so that it would last them for the day that the chef was there, as well as leftovers for the next day. That was sort of our, our way of making sure that um, this person was fed, not just kind of for the one time, but, you know, for the entire week. And we have, you know, quite a few stories like that. And the stories range from all over, from just someone who's like, I just genuinely just wanted a meal and wanted to kind of not have to cook today, um, to people who are unable to pay for food for that day, that week, that month. And we set them up with solutions to those problems. And I think that's a lot of what we hope to do here. And that's sort of like that um, luxury that we're hoping to um, interrupt in many ways is saying, you know, you have the luxury of peace of mind. And I think that that is, if anything, that's like the greatest gift I feel like I want to give to Black trans people is just like the gift of a peaceful mind and not having to fear something as basic as like, where and when will I eat? And how will I eat? Um, there are plenty of people that we work with who don't have working stoves. And so we have to kind of, you know, adjust accordingly. The work is always in flux because we are constantly reaction, reacting to people's needs. Another story is of a very recent one of, that we've hired, um, Jalen Ternage, who is a phenomenal human being and is currently working as our executive assistant. But Jalen was also started out just as a client. And Jalen has said to me, you know, many times just like how, you know, we were able to help her in a time when she really needed it. And now she's just glad to be able to give something back to us. The ability to kind of have someone from the community who we've been able to serve now step into a role and serve the rest of the community alongside of us is just such a gift and such a blessing and such a humbling experience. And for me, makes everything worth it. I love that it's a demonstration also of when people don't have to worry about things like food insecurity, which is something that affects trans and LGBTQ folks more than non-LGBTQ adults. And also thinking about things like the racial wealth gap, where white families are making as much as 12 times more than Black families because of the history mm -hmm. of our country's slave trade, of racism, of um, slave patrol turning into police, like all of the things that you know, go into understanding our history. And, and let's also name specifically that, you know, the higher rates of homelessness, among, homelessness amongst like my people um, and our community also results in, in things that we are, we may not even always be considered part of a household because it may just be us. We may not have um, a, a family that we are kind of existing within, that we are kind of existing within our own spaces if we even are housed. I think that's such a great point. And it's just about helping us the questions that you asked me of challenging our, our default 
understandings of the world or the, the norms that we consistently operate within and trying to understand and take action, you know, as a result of, of raising our consciousness. Activism is something I do because it's the rent I need to pay to live on this earth, as Audre Lorde said. I take that responsibility very seriously, but activism is something that I, I fell into. I fell into because I saw a world that was abusing people that looked, love and lived like me. And I just couldn't stand by and let it happen any longer. You know, I asked myself the same questions that I was asking you earlier in this interview. You know, um, I asked myself, what could I do? And so I went and did it, you know, but to be perfectly frank with you, if I could just wake up every day and be pretty and, you know, wear beautiful outfits and be like, you know, have photos taken of me and be an actress, which is not to say that's all that actresses, actors do because that's not at all the truth. But, you know, if if all I had to do every day was just go to a theater, I'm trained for that. I've been training my entire life to go to a theater and do, you know, an eight show week. And I've been training my whole life to be ready to, you know, talk to press about the show and like be on red carpets. I've trained my whole life for that because I've always wanted to perform and I've always wanted to be an actress. And I see great value in acting and in storytelling. But activism and social justice is something that it's not easy work. And it's not necessarily something that I always wake up wanting to do. It's something I wake up having to do because I can't live in a world where Ayana Dior, Tony McDade, Nina Pop, Malaysia Booker, Diamond Stevens, and there are so many more names that we know and some that we will never know, right? I can't live in a world where those people are brutalized and or murdered and where their murderers and assailants go go without accountability. Uh, my last question is, um, is really about speaking to this moment in time. And, you know, I think 2020 has brought in a lot of different events. COVID is definitely an example. And B is um, this consciousness of people finally understanding what I think so many people have been trying to, uh, you know, shout for for years about Black Lives Mattering and, and about racial justice and about how to be anti-racist and about how to, you know, undo some of these systems that have been affecting people for 450 plus years. So I, I'm curious, can you, what's your analysis on this moment in time as someone that intersects both the LGBTQ and the Black community. What does this time mean for you? What does it mean to others? Um, what's the opportunity here? Is there one? We've had an opportunity to kind of see firsthand um, the duplicity and the base cruelty of the political world um, play out in front of us as people that continue to value um, the economy over human life. And so I think that has sort of activated a lot of people who are unemployed and who are not receiving the kinds of um, necessary government support to keep themselves afloat. I know myself, like I'm having to move during a pandemic because of a racist landlord. And that has, you know, absolutely activated me in many ways um, and supported my own, you know, activation. And I think that the more pessimistic side of me also believes that, you know, some people I think are coming out in the streets because at least they can be outside. And at the end of the day, regardless of regardless of sort of intentions and things like that, because we can never truly know, I think that I am um, provided with a sense of hope that something is going to shift because um, it's just lasted so long and surely people are going to continue to pay attention. There is a bitter sweetness to it because uh, the sweetness is that like, you know, 
that encouraging moment of seeing so many people come out and seeing um, so much support. But the bitterness is also that many organizers and activists such as myself have, we have been doing this work for so long. And for many of us, we've kind of resigned ourselves to the fact that we are building towards a future that we'll just never see. There is hope, absolutely. And there is also, you know, that recognition that the work needs to be done first. So if you're here, fantastic. If you just got here, great. But most importantly, are you going to stay? And if you do stay, what are you going to do now that you are here? Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. And that was Scott Shigeyoka talking to Ian Phil Stewart. You can find out more about the Okra Project at www.theokraproject.com. That's Okra, O-K-R-A. And you can find out more about Scott at scottshigayoka.com. Feel free to check out the title of this episode to see the proper spelling of Scott's last name. And if you enjoyed the interview, please subscribe and help us spread the word on social media. Doing things like that is a huge way to help our show grow. So thank you so much to everyone who's done that. To buy The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I'll see you next week. Bye.